Okay, we're going to be in Habakkuk tonight. <clears throat> Habakkuk, and we're going to read chapter 1. And that's where we'll have our Bible study from tonight. The book of Habakkuk, just right after Nahum, and just before Zephaniah. So. Okay, Habakkuk chapter 1. And we'll start in verse 1. <clears throat> there it says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared, their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, those whose strength is their God." Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations? without sparing. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, confessing that, Lord, our experience and what it is that we see when we look out into the world, Lord, it is very much like uh, that of Habakkuk. Lord, we too often struggle to understand your ways in the world, Lord, to make sense of how it is that the wicked swallow up those that are more righteous than them. Lord, how it is that uh, men who do not fear you, Lord, they do not worship you, Lord, their God is their belly, Lord, their power and their might are the things that they serve, and yet they seem to run to and fro throughout the earth completely unchecked, Lord, doing whatever they please without any repercussions. Lord, help us to see the end of such things. Lord, to have a heart of wisdom and understanding. Lord, to live by faith. Lord, patiently waiting for you. Lord, to act and for you to 
vindicate your righteous ones, Lord, and bring your justice to the earth. So, Father, help us to, Lord, judge things not by what we see with our own eyes, but rather to judge them by faith, Lord, in what your word teaches us. And Lord, to always remember that with you, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. And that you are not slow to fulfill your promises as some count slowness. So Lord, teach us to endure, to be patient, Lord, to wait, Lord, to live by faith, Lord, to persevere until the very end. And Lord, we pray that you might bless this study through the book of Habakkuk. And Lord, that these truths might resonate within our own hearts and minds. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we're starting the book of Habakkuk tonight, and it's a a fairly short book. It's only three chapters, and it's uh, dealing with this issue uh, that Habakkuk is experiencing in his own days. And Habakkuk is a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah. And these were during some very dark days in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. Already at this point, the northern kingdom had been conquered by the Assyrians. That took place in 722 or during the 8th century BC. And now this is in the years leading up to the fall and the demise of the southern kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 586 BC at the hands of the Babylonians. And Habakkuk is looking at Judah and Jerusalem and what is taking place in his own nation during his days. And he's filled with much uh, confusion, consternation, Uh, Because there's so much wickedness that is abounding there in the people, and yet it seems as if nothing is going to happen. They're just going to continue going from bad to worse, and from his perspective or from what he's seeing or what he's feeling and experiencing, it's as if God has turned a blind eye to these things, and it's just going to continue like this. And so he's crying out to God, trying to understand and seek to uh, come to a proper conclusion as to what is taking place in his own day. So this is during a very dark time when there was great evil in the land of Judah. This would be after the days of Manasseh, uh, probably likely uh, during the days of Jehoiakim, uh, one of the wicked kings there in the southern kingdom. And there is much evil going on. The point of the book has a twofold purpose. One, there is the announcement of the judgment that God is going to bring upon Judah. So it is pronouncing those things, but it also is laying out how it is that the righteous are to respond to such things. And this is by patient waiting in the Lord. They have to endure and live by faith in, and trust in God that God will ultimately bring about His purposes on the earth. And He will, will bring about His purposes for the nation of Israel in that He is going to bring His Christ into the world through them. And though there seems to be many things that are rising up in opposition to the fulfillment of God's promises, yet the prophet is assured that God will indeed fulfill his purposes. And we just have to be patient and wait. And this is a very helpful, applicable book uh, to our own situation because what Habakkuk is experiencing is what many Christians have experienced and what many believers in every generation, right? Because in every generation, uh, the wicked outnumber the righteous and the wicked have the positions of influence, of power, of authority. And they often swallow up the one that are more righteous than they are. Uh, And we are reminded that we're living not for this present world and that our hope is not found in this world, but we're looking for a heavenly country, a city whose builder and maker is the Lord himself. So it is there to encourage the faithful to wait 
patiently for the Lord, for Him to act and for Him to uh, bring about uh, His purposes in this world and His purposes for the nation as well. So let's pick up in verse 1. In verses 1 to 4, lay out uh, this frustration or consternation, uh, the confusion uh, that Habakkuk is feeling and experiencing. And he's just laying out, he's not sinning when he's doing this, but he's laying out his honest thoughts uh, toward God in his prayers as he's trying to understand what is going on. There in verse 1, it says, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Here, it is called an oracle or another term uh, that is used in, in your translation. It, it may use the term burden, oracle or burden, uh, and those can be used uh, as, as synonymously. And these are styled oracles because they are oracles that come from God or they're burdens because they are burdens upon the prophet. These are words that come from God, but the message that the Lord delivers to Habakkuk is not an easy message for him to receive, nor is it an easy message for him to proclaim to others. And so it becomes a burden for them because on the one hand, the word of God is within them like a fire that is burning and they must speak it and they must get it out. Yet on the other hand, it is a word that many other people don't want to hear and it will lead to persecution, rejection, ridicule because of the word that he is saying to the people. Then verse two, he says, how long, O Lord, will I cry for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Here, he is greatly disturbed at what is taking place in Judah and in Jerusalem. There is much sin that is going on and he's crying out to God about these things, asking God to help him to help the other righteous ones, to save them, to deliver them from those who are oppressing them. Now, this prayer is an informed prayer, right? He knows certain things to be true about God. He knows that God is a holy and a righteous God, that God loves holiness. He loves righteousness. He loves truth. He loves justice. He knows that that is true of God. He knows that God is a God who does not delight in wickedness, that God hates sin. He hates wickedness. He hates all evil. He knows that God sees everything that is taking place. God is omniscient. God knows all the thoughts, all the words, all the actions. There's nothing that is happening in the world, nothing happening during the days of Habakkuk in Judah and Jerusalem that is unseen by the eye of God. So he knows that God sees all of these things. He also knows that God has the power to do something about it. If God wanted to, he could completely eradicate all of the wicked. He could bring his judgments upon them instantaneously if God wanted to. So he knows all of these things are true about God. He loves righteousness. He hates sin. He sees everything that's going on. He has the power to do something about it. And yet what is happening? absolutely nothing. God is not acting. It seems to him that God is idle, that God doesn't see, that God doesn't hear his prayer. And this is why he's crying out to God, God, I'm crying to you. I'm praying to you. I'm making my request known to you, but it seems as if you do not hear, that you're not listening and that you are not going to act on my behalf. This is what it appears like to him. And oftentimes, this is the experience of the righteous in every generation. From our vantage point in this present life, God's promises seem very slow in their fulfillment. However, we have to see things 
with the eyes of faith and look at them from an eternal perspective, which is very difficult for us to do because of the weakness of our own flesh. Second Peter chapter three, second Peter three, verses eight to nine. Second Peter three, eight and nine says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness. He is not like that at all, but God is patient, yet eventually, in due time, every one of His promises will be fulfilled. And we know that this is the case. In terms of the original promise given to Adam there in the Garden of Eden, it was 4,000 years before God fulfilled that promise that He gave to Adam. 4,000 years is a very long time, right? That seems like a very long time for, for, uh, uh, from our perspective. But is that a long time from God's perspective? No, it's, it's a very short amount of time. And was that amount of time some insurmountable obstacle that kept God from fulfilling His promise? Absolutely not. When God gave the promise to Abraham, it was 1,800 years before Abraham, before the fulfillment, before the seed came from Abraham, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that was a very long time from our vantage point but not from the Lord's. Now, we are 2,000 years since the coming of Christ. And we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. And from our vantage point, it seems like God is slow. He is delayed in fulfilling His promises. But this is not the case, right? We must see that God is not slow. And ultimately, God will fulfill His purposes. But many times, our experience... Right, what we feel or what we're seeing or how it is that we're thinking about these things because of our own limitations and because of our own weaknesses, it seems as if God does not hear. Right? And here, again, Habakkuk isn't sinning in saying these things to God. He's being honest about what it is that he is experiencing in the turmoil within himself. Verse 3, he says, Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Here he says, you, God, you're making me see all of these things. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you cause me to look on wickedness? Destruction and violence are everywhere. Strife is everywhere. This is what is going on amongst the children of men. And Habakkuk knows that though God is not responsible for their sin, he's not accusing God of forcing or making these men sin. However, he also knows who is the one that determines the boundaries and sets the time in which men live. It is God who does so. Who is the one who gives kingdoms to men? Who raises up one ruler and puts him down and then raises up another in his place? God is the one who gives all of these things. And here Habakkuk, is not living during the days of King David, during the days of King Solomon, during the days of Hezekiah or Josiah, righteous kings who promoted justice and truth and righteousness in the land. He's living in the days of Jehoiakim, a day of a very evil and wicked king who is undermining justice and righteousness and truth. And who is the one that gave to this king that kingdom? Ultimately, 
it is God. Why, God, did you give it to him, right? Why not raise up some righteous ruler, right? What is going on? Again, he's seeking to understand the purposes of God. And to them, they are mysterious. They are confusing. It seems like an enigma, a riddle to him. But are any of those things that took place during the life of the history of Israel and Judah, even the wicked kings that rose up and ruled over those nations, did any of that happen outside of the control of God? Absolutely not. And all of it had its purpose in God's plan. Though sometimes those purposes are hidden from us, yet we can rest and we can know that God does all things. He gives dominion. He is the one that has dominion. And He gives kingdoms to whomever He wills. At this point, He has willed to give it to a wicked king. And as a result... There is iniquity, there's wickedness, there's destruction, there's violence, there's strife. This is what is true all around them. Generally speaking, in the land of Judah at this time, this is what is happening, abounding throughout this time. And he is having to live in the midst of all of this sin and wickedness. Verse 4, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Here, the result of all of the sin is that the law of God is ignored and justice is completely perverted. There is no true standard of justice and righteousness. If the law is ignored, the law being the standard of righteousness, if that is not the standard by which you are determining good and evil, then is there ever going to be justice in the land? Of course not. What's going to happen is the complete opposite. You're going to have injustice. Instead of punishing evil, you're going to punish good. And instead of rewarding good, you're going to reward those things that are evil. And this is what often happens, as it's talked about in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, right? They exchange, they substitute uh, darkness for light. They substitute good for evil, right? They call good evil and they call evil good. They call what is bittersweet and what is sweet bitter. What is dark, they say, is light. What is light, they say, is darkness. And this is the situation. Sin and evil are being championed as if these things are virtues, as if these are good things that should be pursued by men. And that which is good and right is being subverted so that the wicked surround the righteous. They surround them and they are oppressing them and justice comes out perverted. In the land, who should be defended? The wicked or the righteous? Well, it ought to be the righteous who are defended. They ought to be the ones who are set forward as the example for everyone to follow. They should be the ones that they make monuments out of, that they name schools after, right? That they uphold as good citizens. But instead, the righteous are being surrounded by the wicked and the wicked are the ones who are being upheld. And whenever they are put forward, whenever they win the day, then it just leads to more and more sin and chaos chaos and more perversion of justice. Okay, so this is the situation during the days of Habakkuk. Sin, evil, injustice, these things are everywhere. The righteous are surrounded by the wicked. Habakkuk is praying for God to do something about it, but it seems to him that his prayers are falling on deaf ears. And so he's asking God, what is going on? He's seeking to understand God's ways in the world. Now, verses 5 to 11 is God's response. God responds or God answers Habakkuk's original complaint or his question that he has. Verse 5, 
Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you would not believe it if you were told. The Lord's response is that He is doing something, and it's so spectacular, it's so wonderful, it's so amazing. He's telling Habakkuk, if I tell you what I'm going to do, you're not even going to believe it, right? It's so amazing and wonderful. Even if I tell you, you won't believe the things that I tell you. So the Lord assures Habakkuk, he is aware of what is going on. So all of this is not happening outside of his control. It's not happening uh, hidden from God. He knows exactly what is taking place. So he knows all that is transpiring in Judah, and he is about to do something about it. And Habakkuk can rest assured that God is not indifferent to his prayers. I have heard your prayers, and I'm about to answer your prayers. And when I do, it's going to be so amazing, you wouldn't even believe it if I told you what I'm going to do. He also is already, he's already doing things. Things are already in motion. Though those things have not come to fruition in Judah and Jerusalem, they already are taking place in other places that is eventually going to lead to the solution to Habakkuk's problem. How long does it take for a nation to rise up out of obscurity to a position of power and authority? Right? It can take many, many years for that to take place. It can take hundreds of years for a nation to rise from a small tribe, from a small group of people, from a small city, to become a very powerful nation that is able to go all throughout the, the, this part of the world and destroy all of these other nations and subdue peoples and uh, to capture cities. This is not something that can happen overnight, but it takes many, many years. And God has already been planning these things for many years, for hundreds of years. Even before the world was created, God already had his decree. But in terms of the execution of that decree in the, in the world, in human history, God is already moving and working because he's raising up the Babylonians, right? And this nation is already on the rise and they are the rising superpower in the ancient Near East and they are going to be the solution to Israel's sin. We remember that with the Amorites, whenever Abraham was there in the land of Canaan, how many years was it until God was going to destroy them? It was 430 years because the iniquities of the Amorites was not yet complete. So though there is sin everywhere, though judgment is coming, God is patient. He uh, endures long with men. However, he already is working and building and doing things that will ultimately lead to the demise of Israel. And so he is assured that there is an amazing work that is coming. And he says, you're not going to believe it. And then verse six, here is the amazing work. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. Here, this amazing work that God is doing is the raising up of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans, another name for the Babylonians. This is the Babylonian empire that would rise uh, to a position of great power. And already at this point, uh, 
they are, are doing so. By the time of Habakkuk, they likely have already defeated the Assyrian Empire at the Battle of Carchemish. That was the pivotal battle there with the Assyrians that made it to where Babylon unseated them. The Assyrians were the greatest power up to that point, and then from that point on, the Babylonians were, and then they ruled that part of the world for a number of years uh, from that point on until the Persians arose and deposed them. Well, God is raising them up, and then God's going to send the Babylonians to Judah and to Jerusalem, and they're going to be His instrument of judgment to punish them because of the many sins. He describes them as a fierce and impetuous people. They are very bloodthirsty. They are fierce in the way that they fight. So these are not uh, Boy Scouts, right? These are not gentle, easygoing people. They love to fight, right? They love war. They love battle. And this has been true for many years uh, in, in many nations and peoples uh, throughout the history of the world. There are people who like to fight. They just love it. And there were nations that loved fighting. <clears throat> they liked violence. They love warfare. This is a way, it's a sport for them to go out and to kill other people, you know, and to see if we can defeat you. And this is the, the type of stuff that they do. They are a very fierce group of people. They march, he says, throughout the earth, right? They march all throughout the earth and they seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They go from their home base in Babylon, and they march wherever they want, all throughout the earth, and wherever they go, they defeat people, right? They conquer them. Their army, their military, is superior to everyone else's. They defeat them, and they take whatever they want from them. The dwellings that are not their own, they seize for themselves. The lands that do not belong to them, they take as their own. The possessions, the people, their wealth, they take all of that, and they bring it back, and they enrich themselves on the backs of others. Verse 7, they are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Here, they are dreaded and feared. At this point in human history, people were terrified of the Babylonians. They were a terror. They were fearful to other nations. You did not want uh, them to come and conquer your land because they are a fierce and impetuous people. They are a people who love violence and it's going to end in you dying or you being taken as a slave and all of your goods, all your possessions, your peaceful, quiet, tranquil life is going to be uprooted. And instead, you're going to be under the rule of these barbarians, right? This is what's going to happen. And as a result, they had a reputation that caused many people to fear them and to have great dread of the Babylonians. The reason is because their justice and authority originate with themselves. Now, he's not saying, God's not saying that the Babylonians are existing and operating outside of the control of God. Ultimately, all justice and all authority belongs to who? It all belongs to God. But in terms of mankind, right, horizontally speaking, amongst other men and amongst other nations, their authority and their justice originate with themselves. They are the ultimate source of authority on the earth at this time, and they are the arbitrators of what is just and what is right. Who are you going to appeal to against the Babylonians when they are the supreme authority in all the land? There is no court, there is no authority that exists outside of the Babylonians that is superior to them by which they can be held accountable for all the crimes that they commit against other people. In, they're at the top of the food chain, right? It would be like the lion, right? The lion 
Who is he going to answer to? There's nobody that can do anything to him. So if the gazelle has been harassed by the lion, who is the gazelle going to go to to get justice against the lion? There's no one that they can appeal to because the lion is the king of the jungle, right? He has the greatest power, the greatest authority, and there is no one who can intercede whenever he is against someone else. This is what the Babylonians are like in terms of the world stage, right? In terms of uh, the history of the world and in warfare, they are themselves their, their own source of authority and their own source of justice. They do whatever they want. They do whatever pleases them whatever benefits them, and there's no, nothing anyone can do about it. And there's no one that you can appeal to to come intercede for you and to help you and to deliver you from them. No one to appeal, but they are the ultimate supreme authority. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. Here, their horses are described as being like leopards in terms of their swiftness, in terms of uh, their fierceness, they're like a wolf in the evening. In terms of how they swoop down, they're like an eagle, right? In all of these animals, they take whatever prey that they want, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. The Calvary is a symbol of their might and of their power. Those militaries at this time, the, if you had a Calvary, and the Calvary was well-trained, they were like an invincible force. And at this point, their cavalry was greater than anyone else's. And when they came with their cavalry, no one could oppose it, right? No one could stand against it. It would be like today, uh, a battalion, a group of men, soldiers, going up against a group of tanks. Who's going to win that every time? The tanks are. They're just going to run them over and squash them. And that's what they would do with their cavalry. They just run through people and just slaughter them, right, left and right. And so they are fast, they are fierce in all the things that they do. Verse 9, all of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They come for violence. They love it. They love their violence. And again, there are people who are like this in our own day, but there were people like this in their day as well. And when there are men who love violence, and then there's no curb or check upon their love of violence, upon their thirst for blood, then they will do things that are almost unimaginable, right? The types of violence and wickedness that one man will commit against another. Senseless acts of violence, things that don't even make sense that people would do these kinds of things to other men. And yet this is what they would do. Whatever they please, uh, just this insatiable love for blood and for violence, unthinkable acts. Now, today in modern warfare, there are certain rules that regulate what uh, countries can do whenever there are armed conflicts, right? So for example, there's the Geneva Conventions uh, that were ratified in the 1800s. And the Geneva Convention was a, a treaty that was signed by all of these various nations and it was an agreement of these nations that if there was an armed conflict with one nation between another, that there were certain rules and protocols that they would follow in the way that they waged that conflict and that war. And there were courts that were established so that if there were injustices and grievances in terms of the conflict, then those who were uh, uh, sinned against 
would have somewhere to appeal to and there'd be some accountability for these countries and the things that they are doing so that they can't just go in and just go and kill everyone in this village, right? If it happens, there's going to be an outcry, there's going to be outrage, and there is some accountability uh, typically today if those things happen. They have to wage war in what's called a humanitarian way. Though, again, we all, we all know all war is unhumanitarian to a degree, but they have tried to regulate it in a way so that there isn't these kinds of senseless acts of violence. None of those things existed at this time. There was no Red Cross. There was no humanitarian aid. There was no UN. Not that the UN is any good. These places are usually worthless. But there was nothing there to help civilians, to help the women, to help the children, right? To, to go in and provide aid for these people, right? There were no rules about poisoning wells and doing stuff like that, polluting things, right? All these things, it'd be a big outcry today if that happened. And there would be great ramifications for countries that did those kinds of things but none of that existed back then so they just did whatever they wanted and nobody could do anything about it because um they have their own rules they are their own rules rule book and they do whatever they please verse 10 they mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them they laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it they laugh at kings and rulers. What other kingdoms are, what other kings, what other rulers, every king and every ruler thinks that they are the greatest in the world and that they have great power and great uh, supremacy and, and great might. But the Babylonians, whatever kingdom there is, whatever king, whatever ruler, whatever empire, whatever coalition that they might form together to try to oppose them, they just laugh at them because there's nothing they can do to stop them. They will wipe all of them off the face of the earth. Fortresses, they laugh at them as well because people think that their fortresses will protect them. It gives them shelter. It gives them safety from the danger and the threat of the Babylonians. But what would they do to all these fortresses? They would just tear them down. They would build up rubble, build up these, uh, these great uh, walkways. It's, it's like, a, like a, a dirt bridge that would go up to the top of the wall. And then they just walk right in and then they tear their fortress down. And this is a big problem because Jerusalem was one such fortress. Jerusalem, the city, was itself a fortress built upon a mountain that was in. Uh, penetrable, right? Only two times in the history of Jerusalem was it ever completely devastated and destroyed. One time by the Babylonians in 586 and the other by the Romans in 70 AD. So it was a very well fortified city. But is that fortress going to stand against the Babylonians? Absolutely not. Because who is on their side? Who is the one helping them, giving them the power to do these things? It is the Lord God himself. Now, the Babylonians, they don't recognize this. They don't see God in anything that they're doing. And, and as it's coming from them, it's coming from their own sin and wickedness. And ultimately, God will hold them accountable for those things. But the reason they grew to the, to the strength and power that they, that they had, the reason they were able to do what other nations could not do, the Assyrians were not able to conquer Jerusalem. God defended them. But Babylon did. And it's because the Lord was with them. God was the one fighting for them and using them in this way. Then verse 11, then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on. They will go from city to city, from nation to nation, like the wind that blows through. 
and no one can stop the wind. This is what they are like. Their strength is their God, but ultimately God will hold them guilty and God will hold them accountable. Okay, now verse 12. 12 to 17 through the end of the chapter is Habakkuk's uh, response to what God just told him, right? So he started with questions, with confusion. Then God answered him, and now he has more confusion and even greater questions of what is going on, right? This is not satisfying to him, and it doesn't help alleviate these problems. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct? Here, God's answer to Habakkuk is even more troubling than the original situation. He's even more disturbed now because of what God has told him. In verse 12, he's dealing with or wrestling with this question of how it is that God, how can he be faithful to his word and faithful to his promises if the Babylonians annihilate Judah? How can God fulfill the promises that he has made? We know, and Habakkuk knows, that God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that in the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, that God is going to bring the Christ or the Messiah, and he's going to come through this nation, right? This is what God has promised to do. But how can God keep that word and fulfill that promise if Judah is destroyed, if they are annihilated? And we remember that at this point, what has happened to the northern kingdom? They're gone, okay? They're wiped off. They're, they are completely gone off the face of the earth. And that is the perspective, that is the, uh, what Habakkuk is looking at, right? This is what happened when the Assyrians came to Israel. They obliterated them. Those tribes are no more. Well, if the same thing happens to us, and we as a nation cease, and we are obliterated, then how can God fulfill the promises that he made? How can he keep these promises if Israel is destroyed? He knows that God must keep his word, that God always keeps his word. He always fulfills his promises. He is from everlasting, he says. He is the Holy One. He is Habakkuk's rock. But it seems that if what God has announced concerning Babylon, if this comes to pass, then God's promises are going to fail. So how can God be God if he doesn't keep his promises. That is the troubling thing that is confusing and causing Habakkuk these problems. 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, we know that one of the characteristics of God in 1 Samuel 15, 28 and 29, is that God does not lie and God does not change his mind. He's not like a man. Men lie and men change their mind, but God never does this. Whatever he says, this is what he's going to do. 1 Samuel 15, 28, And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. He doesn't lie he doesn't change his mind. Yet here, from Habakkuk's perspective, it seems as if you have competing words of God. 
you have one word that God gave to Abraham, and you have this word that he has now given to Habakkuk, and both of these things cannot be true in the same world. This is what it seems like to Habakkuk. You've made this, and now you're saying this, but how can you be the Holy One, and how can you fulfill your promises if we're all dead, right? If we die, and if we are destroyed, and if we are no more. Verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Here, another question or another problem or something that he's thinking about is how can a righteous God use a wicked nation to accomplish his purposes? He knows that God's eyes are too pure to approve of evil. God cannot look on wickedness with favor. But here he's just promised to use the Chaldeans that are going to go and they're going to sweep through the world and they're going to come and destroy Judah. It seems as if they have God's favor. It seems as if they have God's approval. Because they are prospering, then it appears that God approves of them and God favors them. How can God use such wicked people to accomplish his purposes? He knows that God cannot look upon evil. His eyes are too pure. He cannot approve of it. He knows, as it says in 1 John 1, 5, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God hates sin. God hates wickedness. He delights in justice and righteousness. Yet, here He is using the Chaldeans, who are a very wicked people. And Israel is bad, which is true. They're wicked. But the Babylonians are even worse than Judah. Because at least in Judah you have Habakkuk. And at least in Judah you have some other righteous people who live there. You have the remnant, those who are faithful to the Lord. But you don't have any of them over in Babylon. So at least in Judah there is some remnant of those who are faithful to the Lord. But there is nothing in Babylon. So they are in that way even better than Babylon. They're more righteous than Babylon. Yet you're using a more wicked nation to destroy a nation that is more righteous than they. At the very least, you'd have to say that it's a, a wash, right? They're both equally wicked, but Habakkuk said, we're more righteous than they are, yet you're using them to destroy us. But your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you can't approve of these things. So how is it that you're able, and why is it that you're using this wicked nation to do this? Right? If it was a righteous nation, right, a, a nation of believers, who were godly people who feared the Lord, and God used them to punish the wicked, then that would make sense. But using a wicked nation to do this, he can't understand it, right? It doesn't make sense to him. His eyes are too pure to see these things, and the wicked are swallowing up those more righteous, and yet you're silent in all that is taking place. Verse 14, another issue or another thing that doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. If God is sovereign over man, then why does he allow men to act like animals? Why do they behave the way that they do? Verse 14, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? Here, when he looks at the world and when he looks at human affairs, he looks at the nations, it seems like utter chaos like it's a complete free-for-all. 
that there is no one in control. No one is ruling over them. They're just doing whatever they please. Like the fish of the sea, right? Like the fish, there's, there's no, I mean, there is order in a sense in terms of natural order, but there's not order in the sense of righteousness, of justice, of law, in the way things are uh, transpiring in, in the world. This is the way it is in the sea. The shark eats the fish. He eats the son and the daughter. And what can the mother and father do about it? They can't do anything about it. And the shark doesn't care, right? No one's crying about it. It's just utter chaos in everything that is going on in the sea, which is another reason. We talked about this in the book of Jonah, why we should stay out of the sea, right? And on dry land, right? We don't have gills or fins, so it's better to walk on the land than to be there. It's chaos out there in the sea. You never know what is going to bite you. Okay, so here, this is what it is like. It's like uh, the fish of the sea. And this is how it is in the affairs of men. Whoever is mighty, they can do whatever they want. Might makes right. If you have power, then you can do as you please and no one can stop you. And it just seems like it's complete chaos and it's just like and no different than the animals. Verse 15, the Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. If the world is like the sea and fish, then the Babylonians, they're the fishermen. And the fishermen, they do whatever they want. They abuse the sea if they please. They take whatever they want out of the ocean. And they don't have any care or concern about the feelings of the fish and what they're experiencing and what they're going through. They see the ocean and they see the fish as a means to their own profit and their own gain. And in terms of the relationship of men to fish, then that is fine. But it shouldn't be that way of men toward men. Because what is our responsibility toward one another? We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, And we are to do to others as we would have them do to us. And we wouldn't want people treating us like a fish. So why would we do that to others? And yet this is what is happening. The Babylonians are the fishermen. They take whatever they please from the nations, whatever they want, and no one can stop them. If they go into a land and they conquer a city and they want to kill the father, they'll kill the father. If they want to sell the mother into slavery and this part of their kingdom, they'll sell her into slavery. If they want to sell the daughter into slavery in another part, they'll sell her into slavery there. If there's a son and they want to make him do this or that and join their military, then they'll make him join their military. And what can anyone do about it? Absolutely nothing. They do whatever they please and they rule over the world in this way. And there in verse 15, it says, they rejoice and are glad. They love it. They rejoice to behave in this evil, pernicious, unloving, uncharitable way toward others. Because who benefits from all of this? They do. Everyone else suffers and they're the ones who benefit. They exploit whomever they please to their own benefit and they're at the top, so they don't care. They rejoice and they are glad, and they, give, uh, they don't give a rip about how other people feel, what they experience, the suffering, the pain, the turmoil that they're causing to families, to nations, what they're uprooting. None of these things, they don't care about any of those things. The long-term ramifications of anything. All they care is about their own prosperity, their own wealth, their own pleasures and their own comforts and their love for violence and satiating their own desire for blood. And as long as they get to do these things, they rejoice and are glad, no matter what amount of suffering and turmoil it may cause 
for other people. Verse 16, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Do they give thanks to God? No. They worship false gods. They worship gods who promote their violence, their love of power, their strength. Right? This is what they do. They sacrifice to their net. They burn incense to their fishing net. They worship and serve their own strength, their own might, their own power. Isn't this what we see in the book of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar? He erects these altars or these uh, images to himself and tells people to worship him, right? Because he, in his own mind, was a god, a god walking among men. And yet God had to prove to him that this was not the case. He was no god. He was a cow, right? A cow living there among men. And God would give the kingdom to him and he could take it from him however he pleases. So they're not God-fearers. They don't worship and serve the Lord. And yet, they are the champions of the day, right? They are winning the day. They do whatever they want. um, And they have great wealth, treasures, uh, comforts, pleasures, luxuries, because of the way they exploit other people. Verse 17. Will they therefore empty their nets and continually slay the nations without sparing? How long is this going to go on? Is this going to ever end? Right? When these nations like this rise up, it seems as if they are invincible. That they will continue generation after generation after generation and they will just keep doing the same things that they do over and over again. Honestly, when I look at American politics, sometimes this is what I'm sitting here saying. How long is this going to happen, right? How long will they keep taxing us over and over again and wasting all this money? Continually they do these things. Well, this is what Habakkuk is experiencing to an even greater degree, right? They empty their net, they slay nations without sparing, and will they do this forever? Will it ever come to an end? So this is what he is desiring to seek and to understand, right? He's not saying these things in an antagonistic, in a scoffing, in a mocking way, in a hostile way toward God. He's being honest with the Lord, but he's trying to understand. He wants to understand God's ways in the world. And this is what it appears to him. But he's bringing these to God and he's waiting for God to answer him, which is what we'll turn to next week. He's going to wait for God to answer him and for God to give him the wisdom that he needs to understand and to put all of these pieces together so that it all makes sense and he sees it in the right way so that he can respond with faith and with righteousness and with truth. And this is the way that we should be as well, right? There are going to be things that we experience in this life, whether they're things that are happening in the world that we see or whether they're things that happen in our own experience, right? Our own personal circumstances that don't make sense to us, that cause us to question and wonder, right? What is God doing, right? What is going on? Having those questions is not the problem, right? Now, if those questions lead us to be antagonistic against God, to accuse God of sin, uh, to say things that we shouldn't say about Him, such as what happened in the book of Job when Job went too far in his questioning of God, then that's not good. But it is good for us to present these things to God 
and to ask God to teach us and to help us understand and to give us wisdom so that we can look at the world in the proper way and that we can look and judge our own life in a proper way with a proper perspective so that we are walking in the fear of the Lord. And may God grant to us such wisdom and such perspective throughout our study of the book of Habakkuk.